Most of the listeners to this podcast will not be surprised to know that machine learning is being applied widely in the domain of natural language processing, of machine vision, and of translating audio and or transcribing audio. These are all applications that we've covered in depth at techemergence.com. If you're Googling around for NLP or you're Googling around for image recognition, you run into our work on many, many occasions. Uh, and indeed, we work with many startups that are sort of in that space. What also should be known, and many of the folks tuned into this episode maybe already do know, is that most of those applications require huge volumes of data. To be able to detect a person on a bicycle in a video, as opposed to someone on a dirt bike or as opposed to a car or something else, we don't need a handful of images. We often need thousands or maybe tens of thousands of images, depending on the kind of nuance we're looking to pick up on. And it's those kind of data requirements that have opened up this entire new ecosystem of sort of data enrichment. So companies are now brainstorming on what kinds of applications they want to build, whether it's text, whether it's audio, whether it's video. And a lot of the time, they don't have the data in-house to be able to train those products. And so as it turns out, they require the use of large crowdsourcing firms that can help kind of enrich their existing data or even add in brand new streams of data that they darn well need to build out a successful product. This week, we speak to one of the biggest players in this space. Mark Brayan is the CEO at a company called Appen. Appen is a public company based in Australia. Uh, the firm has about 400 employees, at least according to LinkedIn. Many, many, many more folks kind of in their network on the crowdsourcing side of things. And Mark's firm is now working pretty ardently in the domain of data enrichment for artificial intelligence. I speak with Mark about two major themes. First, as a business leader, if I'm thinking about an AI application, what are the cases where I will inevitably need outside data sources? And what are the cases where it would not be required? In other words, when would some degree of crowdsourcing or enrichment on our existing data or adding of outside data be necessary? And when is it not something that I would need? Secondly, we talk about specific use cases. What are some examples of machine learning systems that have needed to be trained for text? What are some examples of specific machine learning systems that have needed to be trained for video or image data? And what does that look like in the real world? What needs to be collected? How does it get plugged in? There's executives tuned into this show who darn well need to know how that process works, what to expect, what's kind of required. And I ask Mark to lay out in detail some particular examples that are sort of paint the mental picture of how this data enrichment process actually works. So hopefully this is a useful episode for those of you, again, thinking about building out AI applications or just want to get an understanding of what the data requirements might be for different kinds of projects. So I'm Daniel Fagella. This is AI in Industry, and you're listening to Mark Brayan of Appen here on the podcast. Without further ado, let's roll right in. So, Mark, where I wanted to start off is really around specific needs for data. I think there's a lot of executives who listen to this show on a weekly basis and who have their minds open to things they could do with AI, products they could develop, products they could enhance. And obviously, a lot of products will involve outside data, being able to garner sort of crowdsource or enriched data that would be a necessary part of building the products. Other applications maybe wouldn't need it. How do you draw the line when someone's brainstorming and they're asking, do we got to leverage crowdsourcing here? What are the factors that lead to a yes? Yeah. So the advantage of the crowd is uh, you get human derived or human quality data. So data from humans uh, that uses the power of you know, a lot of human brains and a, and a lot of humans working together. 
So the, the use cases for human, human-derived data are, are typically AI applications that mimic human functions. You know, the obvious ones are, are speech or, or vision, but there's also a lot of others, you know, making decisions, interpreting language, etc. So I think, I think the first thing that folks need to do is, is consider, well, you know, is this something that can be done computationally or is it something that needs, you know, the nuance of, of humans to work out? I, I think the next thing in is to look at the source of data that you, the sources of data that you have available, because you may have data that, you know, can be used in, in some way, but it could be significantly enhanced with a crowd. So, for example, you may have a lot of custom feedback, you know, surveys and the like that you can uh, build a model to predict what, you know, responses people may provide to you given certain conditions. But you may also in those surveys have a lot of unstructured text. And that's where a crowd can be really useful to do very simple things like, you know, uh, label those, those responses for sentiment. You know, is the customer happy? Is the customer sad? And then you can build a model to automatically, quote unquote, read those comments as they come in and, and react accordingly. So, you know, I think, I think the main thing, Dan, is to have a think about the AI you're trying to build. And are you trying to build something that mimics a human function? Then you probably need some crowdsource data. And second is have a look at the data you got. And do you need to embellish or enhance that data yeah. and could a crowd? quicker or better than than some other method yeah like like a, an army of interns which is wholly unrealistic um so maybe a good distinction maybe here mark is if, if we're looking at an ai application and we ask ourselves okay what sorts of data would we need to train this algorithm on and we can determine if we have that data or not maybe sometimes we either don't have the data altogether or we do have it but it requires some additional interpretation in other words like you had said with the survey, which I think is maybe a good example for the for the listeners, we have things in nice little categories. You know, they have a drop down, it's A, B, or C, and we can just label it A, B, and C, and we can sort of train a machine on those very discrete individual labels that already come out of the survey. But other times people might enter a whole paragraph, and we have to sort of figure out which of these broad five kind of clouds of category does does this paragraph fall into in terms of of their needs or is this positive or negative sentiment as you had pointed out for example and sort of add a level of human interpretation on top of that so there might be some cases where sure we have the data uh, but at the same time it doesn't have the labels it needs it doesn't have the distinctions it needs on it and maybe it's those cases where humans have got to go in there and kind of add that layer uh, i'm wondering if that's a, a good way to nutshell things it is, and I'd, I'd look, look at it through a slightly different lens. Come at it from what's the problem we're trying to solve because the best AI is narrow AI. You know, when you, when you target a specific problem and, and get the right data for that problem, you're going to get a better answer. You try to build something real broad. You know, for example, if you want a speech rec recognizer to, I don't know, recognize any accent, you're going to have to collect a hell of a lot of data. But if you want to build one that recognizes just one person's uh, voice, then that's a lot easier to build because there's there's less nuance for the recognizer to, to understand. That that applies across AI in general. So the narrower the the use case, the more specific the data, the better the the chance of a of an outcome that reflects what what you're trying to do. So you know you you can often then look at a use case and say, okay, we've got all this free text data that's come in from our customer surveys. What we really want to know is, is there any sort of 
correlation between uh, the numeric data and the text data in terms of customer satisfaction. So let's label that text data with some, you know, customer satisfaction taxonomy, and then let's build a model that relates that taxonomy to that unstructured text and correspondingly to the other elements of the survey. So you start to, to hone down on something that, that solves a specific problem and you're going to get a better outcome. But the flip side of solving specific problems is you need specific data sets. And so that's where the value of the crowd comes in because, you know, very flexibly you can ask the crowd to produce, label, enhance, whatever, the exact data set that you need. You know, it's going to happen pretty quickly because, you know, humans in general are pretty smart, very pliable, very uh, agile. Give them some instruction, they'll get it done. And the way we do it at, at scale uh, gives you the high volume you need as well. So so I think the sort of best approach is look at the problem you want to solve, look at the data you've got, and then as quick as you can, get that data in the shape you need it to solve your problem. If you start from the data side, you'll get what the data gives you, right? So if you say, well, I've got all this data and um, I don't know, for example, just say you had a, a data set of you know, stock prices for every day of the year and you had a data set of weather for every day of the year. You can build yeah. a model that predicts which, which stocks go up and down with the weather. Yeah. Kind of interesting but not really useful. You know, you, you just get what the data gives you. Whereas if you say, hey, I want to solve this problem, I'm going to get data that tells me, you know, that aligns with that problem. And, and that's where the flexibility of the crowd comes in. Yeah, beginning with the end in mind, hopefully our, our audience has been beaten over the head enough times with the uh, the fallacy of holding your hammer and just looking only for nails, you know, that the, the general example there is what can we do with AI, which is not the question you want to start with. Similarly, what could we do with this data? Not a good question to start with. What do we want to accomplish that's going to drive business objectives, as, as you were saying there, Mark? Uh, obviously, beginning there would be great. And then I, I like the word shape. So can we take maybe the data we do have and can we shape it? Can we add that layer of richness on top of it? Can we add the detail that, that human uh, distinguishers, for lack of better terms, could kind of add to it in order to allow it to achieve what we want to achieve and, and kind of hit that end. I know the other aspect of this, Mark, is on the data collection side of things. Crowdsource platforms, you, you guys are on the bigger side there, so you do a good deal of this. Uh, crowdsource platforms can certainly layer information on top of existing data, but part of it is also gathering information at scale. A lot of this has to do with language, at least historically, when I've spoken to folks that are in this field, you know, you got a thousand people who speak Japanese, that's going to be able to add a whole bunch of context or potentially data. When you look at collection of new data to train algorithms, so people don't already have themselves that they have to shape, but they have to collect raw, what are some examples there where kind of the crowd tends to be a fit? Yeah, so, you know, a great example is the one you touched on, which is is speech data. And it's something we've been doing for, you know, more than 20 years now from 130 plus countries and, and you know, in nearly 200 languages. So uh, we're, we're pretty skilled at this. The, the reason we collect so much data is because, you know, not only is every, every voice unique, but you layer in uh, clearly language and accent, but also sort of the acoustic environment that you're dealing with. All of those factors play into the success of the speech recognizer. A good example is uh, an in-car speech recognizer, which we've all used and which, you know, <laughs> we've all had varying degrees of success with. My my recognizer has trained me. I have to mispronounce things for it to understand yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
It's what happens when Australians buy German cars. Nah, but, true that, man. True that. And um, so anyways, you know, we have to, again, collect data that fits the use case. So if uh, our customer is uh, an auto manufacturer in the north of England, we have to collect northern accented English. Yes. We have to collect it in the vehicle because we need to get that whole acoustic envelope. We need yeah. to get the road noise. We need, we need to recognize it to understand that, hey, this is a funky environment for, for noise reflection. You've got hard surfaces like glass and soft surfaces like leather. You've got windows up, windows down, you, you know, makes different acoustic properties, et cetera. So the best way to, again, reflect the use case, get the data that reflects the problem you want to solve is to put people in cars and drive around the north of England and have conversations. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's why data collection is, is a really complex, uh, you know, task. You can't sort of create that out of thin air. You know, you can, you can, you know, maybe enhance it through some sort of synthesis, but the best way to do it is, is actually in situ and in the field. And then, you know, go further to, okay, we want this speech recognizer to work in a conference room versus over a telephone. You've got to collect that data in a conference room or over a telephone. So, um, again, getting back to the fundamental premises, what's the problem I want to solve? Have I got data that can be shaped? If not, um, i got to go collect some data um, because otherwise I'm going to solve a different problem than the one I'm trying to solve because you get what the data gives you. Yeah. So, and, and that's a critical factor for folks to consider. You know, if, if you have a bunch of, you know, as you had mentioned, you have a bunch of English, but it's, it's not picking up on the dialects of, of what half of your buyers actually speak with, then you're training a system that's, that's probably not going to cut the mustard for half of the people that are buying what you're selling. So that, that's, that's a, a major, major potential issue there. So yeah, as you had mentioned, if, if maybe we can't shape what we've got, maybe it's time to head into the field and try to collect that in mass. We either get people in cars, we get people in conference rooms, we get people, you know, in whatever the, the scenario is that we have to train for, and we've got to go into the field and actually grab it uh, as it is. I like the saying, you get what the data gives you. And we're actually starting to lean into case studies, so we will, uh, we'll just kind of build off of that right now and run with a little bit more that might have to do with kind of natural language. So you folks do a lot in the speech space, a lot in the translation space, a lot in the natural language space. What are some neat representative examples of other kinds of speech and natural language cases where the crowd is pretty handy and, and critical to getting something to work? What are some low-hanging fruit examples that maybe you can talk about? Yeah, probably a good one that, that has broad application because I appreciate that speech is a fairly specialized yeah. application. Yeah, audio, yeah. Yeah, a, a broader one is, uh, you know, is the world of, of chatbots, which are being used a lot, particularly in the early stages of customer service or sales, um, to sort of triage chat dialogues to direct customers uh, or potential customers to to the right person to solve their problem. So, you know, wind the clock back a few years, you know, you, you're on the telephone, it's press one for this, press two for that. There's a kind of a clumsy menu that you work your way through to a person you know, contemporarily, you've got a chatbot that can, um, you know, via a text interface, answer many of your questions, but also get you to where you need to be inside of the organization. Yeah. Now, yeah. We, we communicate with that chatbot in our own dialect, which is even a, a substructure of, of language, right? So, I, you know, I speak English, people in the UK speak English, people in the US speak English, but we use different words. Uh, for example, if 
I was interfacing with with insurance company to renew my car insurance or, or, or say I had an accident and I wanted to inquire, you know, what happens next? You know, I've had an accident with my car, so I go on, you know, fire up the chat box, start asking some questions. You know, a really simple little thing is that I'm, I'm going to use the word car, whereas um, somebody in the UK might say motor, you know. Yeah. Motor. Yep. Uh, you know, in the US, I don't know, somebody may say automobile. You know, you've got – how does a chatbot deal with all that nuance? So the, where the crowd comes in is – and, we, you know, we, we do this a lot with, um, with some of our customers. We, we get the, uh, the FAQ that the call center uses to respond to some of those questions, and, and we crowdsource those questions and answers to get multiple variants of how somebody may ask those questions or multiple variants of how people may answer those questions. Yeah, okay. So the, the chatbot then becomes richer. Okay, it's heard people say, I crashed my car, I pranged my motor, I, I you know, ran into another automobile, you know, multiple different ways in, in multiple cultural settings that help that chatbot become richer and more capable in order to be able to answer the next question and, and so on. And, and I think the success of, of chatbots comes down quite clearly to their ability to answer customer questions. Um, the more natural it is, the more capable it is, the more people are going to deal with, and the more the end user, um, the insurance company in this case, gets the value out of that channel. So the crowd in this case needs to be, you know, not only, you know, sort of skilled in a, in a rudimentary sense to be able to answer the questions, um, but also needs to be in the country that you want to train the chatbot for. Because if you tried to do this, you know, if I tried to crowdsource, you know, forget about language for a minute, but a, a chatbot that was going to be used in the UK and I tried to do that from here, I'm not going to get all the local nuance. So you yep. need a global crowd uh, to build uh, truly global products. Yeah, it's to be representative of the user, right? So we'd like this kind of user to use this product. Well, if you say that, but the data you're training it on is 90% from one area, and that's really only 20% of your total users, then we're, we're not covering our bases. Now, in some cases, Mark, I can imagine that people might have some of this data. Okay, we've got two years of people asking these questions and how they've been tagged, flagged, and categorized by our own internal teams. We can feed this into the chatbot and train it. I imagine the instances where that might not be the case would be, okay, we're opening our first Australia office, or we're going to launch this product now in French, or we're going to launch this product now in Malaysia. Uh, and by golly, I've got to make sure that this kind of Q&A thing is still going to be tackled and still going to be handled. We've got to go to the crowd because we, we haven't collected that yet. Is that an example of why, when you might need to reach into the crowd versus just dig into your own damn data pool? Yeah, so I think first of all, the, the things that our customers want are lots of data, high quality, and bang on the use case. So yeah, absolutely, people are going to have a, a lot of a lot of data. I mean, an insurance company may have years and years of of emails and and text messages and all other uh, data that they've um, they've captured. They may need to to tag that data, bootstrap the the chatbot, but they may also need to embellish and enhance the data. For example, as they add new products to, to their portfolio that people may want to inquire about. Also, as the, uh, the nuances of evolve, you know, people start using different expressions and so on. Now, now this is before we've even got to 
another country or another language. So uh, that is to say that, you know, by all means, use all the data you've got so long as it fits the use case because you get what the data gives you. But you're going to have to enhance and embellish that data even before you get to another country. But clearly going to another country, you know, you have to localize that that data, not just from one language to the next, but make sure it fits the culture and and so on and so forth. So for some of our customers, we're working on 10% of the data they have. Yeah, They have some data that they're using already. But, but they still need, you know, those other sort of human bits. For other customers, we work sort of on an ongoing basis, just, just enhancing and updating uh, their models. I, I read a study by McKinsey that said almost a quarter of AI models need need nearly daily updates to, to keep the model up to date. So, you know, once you've collected your data and built your model, you, you're not done. You know, you've got you to refresh that and keep that up to date. Yeah, and sometimes that's going to be done just through the product itself, uh, but sometimes you're going to need to be adding things from the outside ongoing. And, and I imagine that some of the projects that the folks in the in the crowdsourcing world are into, probably yourselves included, involve a lot of upfront work, but then also involve a pretty robust long tail of the same kinds of information being fed uh, in order to you know, factor for all those new things. There might be some new slang that people under the age of 30 start using. And you're either going to have a model that adapts to that and adjusts to it immediately and seamlessly for your users, or you're going to have a new category of people that aren't satisfied because they use a term that you're not trained for, or, you know, talk about a product that maybe your model doesn't sort of adjust for yet. So uh, I can imagine you guys see a lot of that long tail as well. Yeah, it, just think exactly. So you're building a product. AI is a product that mimics a human function. So think about the training needs of, of a human. Instead of a chatbot, think about training a human in a call center. So there's an upfront piece of work to train the call center operator in what the business does, how to respond, etc. That's 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 like the upfront work that we do. And then there's on-the-job learning. So the call center operator is going to learn as they work just as the AI is going to learn as it works. Because by being rewarded, the AI learns, right? So if I want to call you on my phone and I use speech and I say, call Dan, and it brings your number up and I press dial, that recognizer has just learned something. Aha, I got that right. So the AI learns on the job, just like a human learns on the job. But periodically, and this is the long tail, you know, you've got to pull your call center operators into a, you know, a day's training just to update them on new products or, or new offerings or, or something. So just as, as humans need multiple channels and modalities of training, so does the bot uh, or so does the AI. So, again, it comes back to how am I going to make this product, this AI product, as effective as possible? It comes down to as much applicable on use case data that I can possibly put in it. And that's going to come from different places, from crowds, from systems, from experience, et cetera. Yeah. And I think it's sort of touching on the uh, a point that I think often isn't evident for whatever reason when, when people initially learn about AI or brainstorm on where there might be applications in their own business, which is that uh, if we're training a system to do X, um, we're going to need to feed it with the same kind of information that we would feed a person who needs to do X. I think making that analogy is good. So we'll wrap up lastly with one last little final question about vision and sort of if we have maybe one very quick example on vision that we could touch on. 
you know, that's a big aspect of the crowd. I know that that's part of what you folks do as well. Might as well get get a kind of representative example of where the crowd can layer their insight onto video or image data. Yeah, so image and video data is is a fascinating and and, and very broad part of the work that we do. I've seen studies where uh, you know they estimate that, that image-based AI could be ten times uh, speech and language-based. Um, Would not surprise me at all. Yeah, and and where the crowd comes in, and again, the fundamental principle: you you want the the data to fit the use case, to fit the problem you're trying to solve. So where the crowd comes in is when the problems are really complex. So if you think about uh, an autonomous vehicle, and if you think about that vehicle driving down a, a regular city street, you, you only have to go and stand out in the street and, and you, all of a sudden you sense all the things you have to know before you cross the road, let alone drive a vehicle down the street. You know, you have to be able to see people moving and estimate where they're going to be and whether they're going to be on the road. You have to be able to uh, look at somebody on the other side of a parked vehicle and uh, who they may be and where they may going. Is it a mother pushing a pram and the pram may come out on the road? For example, you have to sense what animals are going to do. You have to be able to distinguish between mo- immobile and mobile objects or, or, or immobile objects that could become mobile. And, and all of that takes an enormous amount of data. So every one of those use cases is, is, is covered. Um, a- another really interesting use case is check out less shopping. So, you know, shops that want to have cameras that enable people to walk into the shop, take a product off the shelf and walk out and have that transaction done in the background by recognizing who that person is, recognizing what product or products they just picked up and then collating and checking the price of those products as the person leaves the store and charging their account. Again, a human can do that pretty easily, but to build AI to do that's incredibly complex. Yeah. Uh, and you just start to think of all the little subtleties that can go wrong two people walk in but one person walk out how does that happen oh it's a mother and a child and she walks in with the child next to her and carries the child out so you know things like that humans can work out really easily so we're doing a lot of work with very very large image data sets and we're tagging and labeling that data in a variety of ways and here's the exciting thing about image data is that the same data can be used over and over and over again yeah yeah um, because it can be labeled differently um, so I think there's a, a real sort of endless set of possibilities with vision-based AI. Having said that, you know, back to speech for a second, that's kind of a conceivable problem. There's only so many words, so many accents, so many languages, and we haven't solved that problem yet. So solving all of the vision-based AI Heck problems no. is yeah. it's wow, right? Yep. Um, which goes to, to volumes of data. Um, I read a study that said and it was a study out of MIT it said that usable AI can be built with about 5,000 uh, examples of labeled data, but human quality AI requires 10 million examples of labeled data. So, you know, to, to get the machines to mimic the humans, it requires an enormous amount of data to get anywhere near what humans are capable of doing. Yeah, good good kind of overview there. And I think hopefully for the folks tuned in, the point is clear. If you want to coax out a set of behavior or coax out the identification of objects or coax out the prediction of an event based on preceding events, um, you need a lot of instances of that visually. And you need somebody to be tagging and flagging those so that a machine could be trained. And I think your point is an apt one. If we're in a retail environment, we might want to do, you know, counterless checkout or something. And in one instance, we might want to detect one kind of theft in another instance, and we might want to detect, you know, some other sort of behavior 
you know, maybe maybe people not scanning their items properly at the self-checkout or something. And if we have all that camera data sitting somewhere, we could go dip in, run the crowd on this kind of behavior and label them all, run the crowd on this kind of behavior and label them all, and eventually end up with a machine that can sort of coax out the same nuances. Um, and, and like you said, the volume's got to be pretty big, uh, and, and the number of people you have doing it probably have to be pretty big too. Yeah, and the good news is with um, you know vision data in particular, there's, there's quite a lot available. The bad news is is that the same data can be used for multiple use cases, but it it, it all needs to be labeled uh, accordingly. And perhaps the, the the good news on that bad news is companies like ours have have the crowdsourcing capability and and other other capabilities to help people uh, label that data, you know, cost effectively and and really fast. Yep, an exciting and increasingly competitive field as cameras being used to feed to computers vastly outnumber cameras being used to feed to humans. Uh, and somebody's got to make sure that those cameras are getting trained. So hopefully this has opened up the minds of some of the people tuned in. Mark, that's all that we had for time, but I'm really glad that we got to get in this interview. And thank you for being here on AI and Industry. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure and I, I hope it was helpful and I hope it was fun. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get our, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>